media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Had quite the challenge this week because it was either do two verses um, or really one verse uh, or try to do four and get the whole concept together. Um, I figured if we just did one verse this morning, we would be able to kind of cover it a little bit more uh, uh, deeper. And yet we may be still preaching Revelation 21 and 22 when Jesus comes back. And so it is one of those, I mean, seriously, it's, you know, we're going to move along. And so we're going to have this concept today. There's a lot there. Um, we have tomorrow off, right? Or a lot of people have tomorrow off. So we've got time if we want to spend here. But, but it's a really serious, it's a really kind of difficult kind of passage in that there's this, all of a sudden, as he's talking about heaven, he talks about the realities of hell. And we'll get into that verse a little bit later on, but anytime that you speak about hell, there's such a mix of emotions. And, uh, you know, uh, people that are in our family and, and ones that don't know Christ and are going, oh my goodness, the reality of that. Then also, like me as I was 12 year old, I, I've told you before, when I came to know Christ, it, truly, as much as I can remember, it was to avoid hell, not so much to get God. I mean, and, and I, it was just one of those things that scared me. And so it was one of those things I'm going, okay, I don't want to go to hell. And so it's really this tough subject. We will always try to preach the truth. We're always going to try to preach it in a, biblically and in sound. And so we're never going to apologize for the things of God. When we come upon passages that talk about the wrath of God, even though that's a hard thing, we're not going to water that down because God hasn't watered that down. These are truths. These are realities. And we're going to look this morning at four different realities. Three of them are very pleasant to us. You know, because we're going to, for the, if you're a believer, we're going to go, man, I can't wait to heaven. I can't wait for this. And then that last one really is a hard one. Because every one of us know people that, that have not had their eyes open to the things of Christ yet. And we're praying for them. Perhaps you've been praying for them for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. Well, this morning, I've, I've got to lay down a foundation that I think will help us with this text. It's one of those things that is helpful for us to understand this premise, this truth, in order to go through all of Revelation 21 and 22. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is the best biblical description of man, of humanity? Okay, you have two choices here. 50-50 chance. We are primarily physical in nature with a spiritual component. Are we primarily spiritual in nature with a physical component? If we looked at the Bible, which one of those is the answer that the Bible would say? Not that we would come up in our wisdom. Are we physical people primarily with the spiritual notion? Or do we, are we spiritual people that just happen to have a body for right now. Any guesses? We are spiritual people. If we look at the Bible, it says that we are primarily, we were created with a spirit, and, and the intention is to have a spiritual connection. Well, we just do it right now in these earthly tents. That's why the Bible refers to the body as a temporary thing, um, it's a tent, it's a housing for this world. But at our core, 
You know, what makes you, you? Personality, convictions, thoughts, beliefs. Folks, that's not a physical body. That's not even just the physical brain working. That's your soul. And so I want you to understand that as we go into this passage this morning, one of the difficulties that we have in talking about heaven is not only do we have this BB-sized brain that we talked about weeks and weeks ago, but we usually think in human physical terms rather than in spiritual terms. And so we're already, you know, as we've said before, 99.9% of our questions about heaven have a very horizontal basis. What's the food going to be like? Will there be Krispy Kreme donuts? You know, that, you know, all these things that are relevant now. You put a Krispy Kreme donut in front of me. I mean, it's obvious. I'm going to take it. <laughs> and yet, is it going to be irrelevant there? I think so. Because even though we're going to have a human uh, body, a physical body in heaven, there will be a physical resurrection. Uh, it's not the point. It's the spirit, the soul. And that really describes why we're all different. You could take two twins and, and they're exactly the same, maybe on the outside, and yet they could have personalities that are quite different. God made us with a soul. And when we understand that spiritual nature, we begin to understand the text this morning or the foundation of the text this morning. Uh, Revelation 21.5 as we start moving through, we see God revealed to John. John's the, the one that's receiving this revelation. And God says this. Now, up to this point, if you go back and most of the things that God has said up to this point are, they're given to an angel to say. And so God says, okay, this is my word, but this angel is the one delivering it. Today, God says it himself. He doesn't say, okay, here, angel, go say this. This is coming from the throne room, the voice of holy God. And God says that there's th- that these things that he's about to pronounce are trustworthy and true. Look what it says in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We've seen that in the last couple of weeks. This new is new in rede- uh, redeeming, redeeming way. It's a redemption thing. It's not just that he obliterated the old. It's a new and that is perfected. So he says, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this down. You're going to find that instruction of writing down given to John in the beginning chapters of Revelation. That's kind of his job. God says things, and John's to write them down. And he continues now even in chapter 21. Write these down, for these words are what? Trustworthy. And true. Wow. In a world where we don't, I mean, sometimes we don't even, you know, we can't trust hardly anybody to know that these things are spoken by God and that they are trustworthy and true. We should have a mind to listen. But we should have some capacity or said within our humanity to say, these are really important. I need to take note of these. I'm thinking that we should be very careful to listen to the words there. When he says that something is trustworthy and true, has God ever said something that wasn't trustworthy and true? So, so why does he say that? Have you ever said somebody in conversation, you're just talking, you're going, no, honestly, do, 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 do. 
And then whatever, you know, do, 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 blah, blah, blah is. What do you mean by that? You're not saying everything previous to this comment has been a bold lie. And now, finally, I'm speaking some truth. Now, what you're saying when you make a comment, even in our humanity, when we say, no, honestly, blah, 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 we're saying, I, I, hopefully I've said true things before, but I really want you to listen to this because I really mean that this is honest. I, I so believe this. And I believe that's the context here. God always tells the truth. It's not like he said, okay, up to this point, I've been kind of pulling your leg. And now you can listen to these things. No, he's saying for emphasis, these things are trustworthy and true. So what is it that God's emphasizing as trustworthy and true? This morning, four things that we find in these three verses. First thing we see, he says, it is done. Look at Revelation 21.6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, what other words come to your mind when you see God saying here, it is done? What kind of comes into your mind? Christ on the cross when he said what? It is finished. When he said it is finished, was it finished? Yes. The payment for our sins was finished. It was complete. He didn't have to run back the next day and go, oh, a little bit more. He didn't have to run back five years later. He didn't have to run back when you were 12 years old or 15 or 18 and you came to Christ and he said, oh, let me go run to the cross. It was finished. Here God says, it's done. What was done? Well, even though the full payment was paid, and we can declare truths like Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can claim that, and is that a truth? Yes. And yet, do you still face some feelings of condemnation in your own life? Even without the assistance of others? I mean, really, in your own mind, do you feel like, ah, God, I let you down today? So even though positionally, theologically, it is finished, we still experience some of that. Why? Because we're still here on planet Earth. It's what we've seen the first couple weeks as we've been going through this passage. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I will be known, I will know fully, even as I've been fully known. Even though it's finished, I could not be more saved. I could not be more complete in Christ Jesus because of his work. I'm still experiencing life in this body. And so I love how John MacArthur, he's one of my favorite theologians, writers, and I love the way that he said it. Jesus' works, when he said it is finished, Jesus' works marked the completion of the work of redemption. And he says about these words in Revelation 21.6, he says these words mark the end of redemptive history. Does that make sense? Christ did all the work and he said it is finished. It's, the work is complete. Now redemptive history is complete. God says, it's done. <laughs> I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Does that make sense? It's still kind of hard for us to kind of conceive that because right now, we were talking last week, you know, it's hard for us to, to think about life without the presence of sin. Do you realize this? 
that you've never had one day, you've never had one hour. Folks, you've never had one second in your entire lifetime without the presence of sin. Both in your own body and you live in a world of sin. Remember last week we talked about big S sin, that is the nature of sin, and then our own personal sin. You have never had one human breath absent from that. Now Christ gives us victory over that, but you still have to deal with that. And so like we said last week when we were talking about no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, it's because now the finality of that redemptive work of Christ is now done in full. Who is tracking with me? Who's kind of with me this morning? Because I, I realize that, you know, y'all are smart people. I, I told you I'm always going to preach to you as you are intelligent, seeking people. I'm not going to try to water it down or dumb it down. And yet it's kind of a hard concept to, to think about the fullness of the work of Christ already being completed, and yet every day I struggle, and every day I sin. So it seems like we're kind of living with two different truths there. So... At this point in time, that God shows John the Revelator, when he he shows him this vision, God says, it is done. No more redeeming. Not even the process of of, uh, redemption is happening. Nothing is tainted. Nothing is broken. Nothing is less. Nothing is empty. And that leads us into the next thing that we see at the end of that verse. Second truth, that is trustworthy and true. The saints, that is the people of God, will be fully satisfied. Look what verse 6 says again. And he said to me, it is done. The alpha, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's the Bible. Water is used as a spiritual kind of symbol of need. Uh, we can't relate to it that much. We go to the water fountain, we go to the kitchen, we turn on, there's water. Back in those days, you had to travel to get water. Water was not just something that was easy to have in the home. People died in the old, in biblical times from the lack of water. And, and so this is something that they would have related to. Uh, for example, remember when Jesus was at the well with the woman at the well? And he said, I can give you water so that you'll never thirst again. And what did she say? Give me this water. And the first thing that she says after that, so that I will never have to come back to this well again. Remember, that was a walk of shame for her. It was a reminder of her sinfulness and how she was an outcast from the other ladies in that community. And her first thought, even though it was a spiritual thing that Jesus was saying, was very much the human part of her that said, I would never have to walk alone to get this water. I never would have to remind, be reminded on a daily basis that I am an outcast from the other ladies in the community. That didn't, sorry the pun, water down the truth of what Jesus was saying. It just shows our natural reaction. We think about it in human terms, and he uses this symbol of water now to say very much, I will satisfy your thirst. I mean, go back and look at the response of the woman well. John 4, 13 through 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water 
will be thirsty again. Even though he told her that, and he was talking about the physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become to him a spring of water welling up for eternal life. In in many ways, do you still thirst? All kinds of, not just for water. Coffee in the morning. Do you experience thirst of different capacities every single day? The the promise I believe here, the application, and again, we have to be so careful because God is making spiritual promises and it's hard for us to relate because we're almost always going to put them on a human level. But I think that we're very safe biblically to take this text when he says, okay, you're going to have this water, this forever water that we're going to be forever satisfied. Can you imagine life without any of your thirst? That all of your thirsts are totally satisfied in the finished work of Christ and the presence of holy God. Isn't that amazing? No more hunger in that sense. No more need of, man, I'm just kind of feeling down today. Have you ever woke up and said, I just need a hug? Or I need to go hug somebody. I don't think that's going to exist in heaven. Not that there won't be hugs in heaven. I don't know if there's going to be hugs in heaven. I don't know if God's going to go, okay, come on, group hug. I don't know. But there's not going to be a need that has to be satisfied because we have less. My little BB brain can't even conceive that. And yet what he has said here is, look, you're going to be able to, I I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And in other words, you didn't earn this. This isn't something you achieved because of your good works. This is something you did because you're really good people. Now he said, because of my grace, because of the work of my son, now you're going to see the redemptive action in full force. A life without need. I can't even imagine that. And that leads us to the third truth in the next verse. Saints will no longer face battles. If you're a believer, if you put your full trust in the work of Jesus Christ, is the only way that you can be right with the Holy God. There's a day and a promise here where God says, basically, you are now a conqueror and you're going to know the full conquering ability uh, in completion. Look what it says. In verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, what is he talking about a conqueror? Are we already, if you're a Christian this morning, are you a conqueror in Christ Jesus? Yeah, the Bible uses that terminology. I asked praise band this morning as we were praying and prepping. Do you feel like a conqueror every single day, Ricky? No, a warrior maybe, not warrior, but warrior with an A. I mean, when you wake up in the morning, guys, I mean, just be very serious. When you wake up in the morning, do you already kind of anticipate that the day is going to bring battles? And it's not that we can't have victory in those battles, okay? Because of the work of Christ, because of the very feeling of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, We can be victorious in those battles, but have you ever had one day, even one hour, where there hasn't been a battle of some sort? 
Probably not. And this is the hard part of really thinking about that in spiritual terms and not just in human terms. When God says the one who conquers, he's not saying that we obtain the victory on our own efforts. He's saying now the fullness of the victory of Christ is realized by all believers to full capacity. The redemptive work of Christ is now realized in full completion. What's a practical thing that we can say about that? No more battles. No more battles. We are overcomers. Now, who are the overcomers? John, actually in his, when he was writing 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he, he said this, 1st John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God does what? Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Right now we need faith because even though that's a reality that Christ did this, do you need to exercise faith in order to face your battles tomorrow? Yeah. You have to believe the word of God. You have to believe the promises of God. You have to believe even though you weren't there to watch Christ die for your sins, that that all happened. And so we have a faith that makes us an overcomer now. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not about a religion. It's not about a church. It's not about morality. It's all about who Jesus was and that we've placed our complete confidence in Him. Folks, we face battles every day. Can you even imagine an existence where there's not a fight waiting for you, that there's not a battle waiting for you? I mean, now we face battles the minute we get up. I mean, from, from the, the serious to the non-serious, the silly. Anybody on a diet right now? Battle? Instead of like victory, victory, 10 more pounds, 15 more pounds, 20 more pounds. Krispy Kreme. Battle. Heaven is a place of no and battles for the redeemed. Why? Because all of a sudden, you know, he's going to just as many Krispy Kremes as you want without calories? No, that's human understanding. I like the thought. But if I'm really spiritual in nature, and these are spiritual truths, it's because the work of Christ is now totally complete, and that redemptive work that Jesus said, it is finished, now God said, it is done. The fullness of this work is now complete. I mean, can you even imagine an hour without a battle, even the battle within you? I mean, isn't it enough that we have battles outside of us? A lot of you are teachers, and you're called with a passion. And yet, would you say that going to school and doing your job and This calling that you have a passion about involves battles. Even before you get out of your own home, even before any other family member is awake, the battle's within yourself. Folks, we battle every single day. This will be, he said, it's done. No more battles. But pastor, you know, Garden of Eden, if we think back, Adam and Eve, you know, 
They were in a perfect, they were created perfectly and they were in a perfect place, place of no sin. And yet they had to battle. Remember that serpent? Folks, look what happens to the serpent. Look what happens, not in chapter 22, but in chapter 20. Where are we today? Chapter 21. And so previous to this, look what happens. By the time we get to verse 7 of Revelation 20, the millennial period has already happened. Folks, the millennial period, a thousand years, has a thousand different interpretations. You're talking about really people having all kinds of different interpretations of what the millennial period is, what it's not. I'm pretty simple, okay? I have a lot of different thoughts uh, theologically. Are we already in the millennial period? Is this a true thousand year? There's a thousand different thoughts out there. But here's what I do know. Look what happens in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And what does he mean by his prison? During this thousand years, he's bound and he's put into a prison. There's this time when there's just this victory in Christ, okay? Verse 8. And will come out to deceive the nations that are there at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their numbers is like the sand of the sea. So even after the thousand years, there's Satan's still there and he's like this last little battle. Verse 9 and 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp and the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Verse 10, look. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The battle's over, guys. The battle within you because of the victory of Christ, the, the battle of the tempter, the deceiver, because he's been already bound and cast into hell. The day that God's talking out, he said, it is done. Redemptive history is now complete. And the victory of Christ, guys, will be ours forever and ever. Now look at the fourth one, that fourth statement that he said is trustworthy and true. Those without Christ will spend eternity in hell. I don't apologize, but that's hard to say, guys. Never will I water down the truth of God's word. But it's hard. I mean, if you're a loving, caring person, and you knew you were saved only by the grace of God, that you would not have been saved had God not opened your eyes to the beauty of his gospel in your own sin, you realize how precious grace is. You, you realize how precious salvation is. And so there should never be any joy gone, yeah, that guy deserves hell. We all deserved hell, guys. This is really hard from that human emotional level because all of us have family members. All of us have loved ones. We might have children. We might have parents. We might, we might have people. We're going, I just want them to know Christ. I just want them to have in their hearts what God has given me by his grace. And so we don't say this lightly, but let's not water down the reality of the truth of the Gospels. And if God has said something, especially he says this is trustworthy and true, then let's take it with full weight. 
And if anything, have an urgency in our heart and our lives to share the gospel with family members. How fast we are to, to hang on to what we love and, and throw out what we don't love. And yet in poll after poll after poll, as recent as this year, in the 2023 Gallup poll, here's the number of people that believed in heaven. Here's the number of people that believed in hell. Do you realize that Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible? Not because he's going, okay, I'm going to get you one. No, he wants us to know the reality of this. Years ago, a pastor went to the pulpit and he realized this tendency for us to kind of hang on the truths that we like and kind of ignore the truths that we, he, that we don't like. And so he went up there and he actually took his Bible as he's preaching and he came to a passage and he ripped out that page from the Bible. Can you imagine how that church reacted? I mean, if I'm just going along and we're reading this morning, I'm going, ah, I would think that there would be a reaction from you. And yet, isn't that sometimes what we do with the doctrines of God that are hard? Isn't that the things that we do with the truths of God? When God says something is trustworthy and true, guys, guess what it is? Trustworthy and true. And what does he say here? Look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here's the problem that we have in our humanity. Whenever there's a list in the Bible, and oftentimes the Bible, when it's discussing something like this, will give a list. And the first thing we do in our human nature, am I on the list? Okay, no, no, no. Ah, oh, man. He had to throw that lying part in there. I was okay with murder. Kind of. <laughs> Isn't that the human tendency? Isn't that your tendency when you see these lists? Folks, this, this is not to be a definitive list of sins that send people to hell. All sin sends people to hell separate from the Holy God. The only hope we have is the redemptive work of Christ. This is a representative list. And the reason why he makes lists and why we see that throughout the Bible, I can tell you the Corinthians, I can tell you the Old Testament, where there's this list, and, and, and we go through this list, and we're going, I'm so glad I'm not one of those, or one of these, or, or that. Every single time, guys, it's not to be a complete list. What it is is showing us our sin. And, and I don't know about you, but I can't make it through this verse. And say that I'm sinless. 40 plus years of ministry now. And the one thing that I've never encountered, never encountered, by one person I've had opportunity to talk to, is somebody say, well, I've never sinned. I've had a lot of people that said they don't believe in God. I have a lot of people that said this, that, and the other. Had all kinds of strange different thoughts about different theology. But I've never encountered a person that said, I am perfect. Even they would acknowledge whether it's a biblical list or some other, that they don't have perfection. This is not a complete list. We can't say murderers, ah, not me. Liars, oops. This is just showing our sin nature. 
In the same way that it's really hard for us to think about the glories of heaven, would you admit that today it's hard for us to really kind of get our hands around, our minds around, our hearts around the horrors of hell? Again, that's not to frighten us into kind of this fearful response to God, but it is to put us in awe of our salvation. I have not done one thing deserve his grace. When he says unmerited grace, guess what that means? It is unmerited. Yeah, but I'm not as bad as this other guy. I didn't do the things this gal did. Unmerited grace. You have not done one thing to deserve the glories of this heaven that we've been talking about. You've done everything to deserve the horrors of hell. And yet when I was 12 years old, By the grace of God, he opened my eyes to my sin. The beauty of a Savior. Again, when I was 12, guys, I'm going, I just don't want to go there. I wasn't thinking, you know, man, I can't wait just to that million-year worship service. That was the farthest thing from a 12-year-old boy's mind, I promise you. And yet he saved me. By his grace, his amazing grace, he saved me. In the same way that we cannot have anything but a foretaste. I mean, when I say, imagine a life without battles. Imagine a life being fully satisfied all the time forevermore. We get our little BB out and we're going, okay, this is kind of like the best I can understand it. When that same truth, it's hard for us to really think about this lake of fire called hell. I don't know if it's actually a lake of fire. Before you fire me, it's it's because that makes sense to me. When we have Dante's Inferno, have you ever read Dante's Inferno? It's not really meant to be a religious book, but it's kind of like, okay, here's like these levels of hell. It's man's trying to grasp with the horrors of hell. And and folks, there's one horror, horror from hell that we really need to grasp, and that is God is absent. The full wrath of God is on display there. I don't know if it's going to be fires. I don't know. I mean, for all we know, it could be fire ants. Forevermore fire ants. I've heard people say all kinds of things. So I bet it's like this. But I don't know. I'm just going to go with what the word says. That is a, a lake of, of fire and sulfur and torment. The main thing I know it's the full wrath of God. It's the absence of God. See, even now, if you're, if you're not a believer today, you still experience what we call theologically common grace. That God's love and his peace and his common grace still holds this world together. And that's why people that don't know Christ can still have, if you want to quote unquote, a good life. But on this day, the reality is, I mean, it's his words. These things are trustworthy and true. Here's three things you can know about heaven. Here's something you need to know about eternity. This is serious. It's not time for a joke, and it's not time to be lighthearted. 
But what it is time for is to understand that why we still have breath and why we still have life and we still have a day left and an hour left, a minute left, that we see the offer of Jesus Christ. Turn to Revelation 22. It's not the last verses of the Bible, but it's near the very, very end. And at this point, it's talking about the return of Christ for all those that are reading Revelation. And look what he says, Revelation 22, verse 16 and 17, and then we'll close this morning. If you have a red letter edition, what color is verse 16? Red, which means it is the words of Christ. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Now look at the invitation, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take on the water of life without price. And that's what God extends to us this morning, guys. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the invitation. The reality of, of chapter 21. The reality is of heaven. The reality is of hell. And here's this invitation. He closes out this revelation by saying, come. Come, without price, without merit, come. This is a hope for you if you don't know Christ this morning. This is hope for every family member that doesn't know Christ this morning. This is the hope of every friend, of every co-worker, of every person. That Christ, as we have breath in our lungs by his grace, he says, come and receive this promise. Let's pray. Father, we love you. This is hard for us to understand, Father. This is hard for us not to go into uh, the extremities of the horrors of hell, Father, or go into the, the Father, just, oh man, a, a life without battle, a, a life where we're fully satisfied. Father, we cannot even begin to really conceive, even in part, what that is. But, Father, the part that we can understand the part about heaven, Father, to wake up and, or to exist without battles, to never feel need again, to be complete in every way, to never feel shame. Father, we want a heaven like that. We want to be in a heaven like this. But Father, to think about... Uh, an eternity separated from you. Whether it has flames or not, whether it's filled with fire ants or this or whatever, our minds cannot even begin to conceive what it means that the full wrath of you, holy God, against sin and our rebellion, that, Father, it lasts for an eternity. So, Father, thank you. But in this letter, this revelation that you give to John, where you say these things are are trustworthy, these things are true. Father, just a chapter later, you say, come. Come. You're thirsty, come. Drink from living waters without price. And so, Father, we sing this song, Amazing Grace. We sing it in two different ways. I pray this morning, Father that you would help us to sing it as, a, as, as just a, 
a testimony of the amazing grace that you have given us for a Christian. Father, that you would help us to sing it as an invitation if we haven't placed our trust and our hope in you. For truly you are a God who's given amazing grace. Even Father, we could never say thank you enough. We love you. We praise you. And Father, we ask that you would work this morning in our hearts and our lives as we pray this in the hope that is Christ Jesus, the victor, the conqueror, that brings us victory and conquering, living water where we'll never thirst again, Father. We pray it in his powerful name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.